drowning on dry land. The second episode, parts four and five. Part four, dark cloud rising. I wonder what's going to become of me. Before I plunge in, I'll offer a brief word of caution. I'll be using words that might strike some as inappropriate. Words like crazy and nuts and loony. I claim the license having been through the mental health cauldron. And what's more, I've used them with the doctors and therapists and other professionals, apologizing until they said it was no big deal. So that's my warning sign. I advise listeners who feel they would be offended by such language not to continue with this. For everyone else, it's howdy doody time. I always told my writing students that residing in each of us is a whole range of potential, from transcendent good to the darkest evil, and every possibility in between, and that writers, like actors, are served by a willingness to tap into those points along the spectrum to create and motivate characters who have depth and nuance. It's a matter of which angels we choose to put in motion, of being willing to go there, in other words. And now I've come to understand that there also exists within us a string of mental lights stretching between brilliance and dark lunacy, though I do not claim to grasp more than a few pieces of this construction. For me, what transpired over three months in 2019 was a spiral into that second end of the spectrum. The doctors called it a, quote, late-age psychotic episode, unquote. Whatever the clinical definition, it was a reeling nightmare that landed me first in a psychiatric ER and then in a mental hospital. I was never one to shy away from the recesses of madness and was, in fact, often drawn by the lure of those murky caverns. Then, after six decades that included serious accidents and other violent events, I was tumbled into a surreal underworld that outdid anything I could have imagined. It was the second week of April when this part of the story begins. Matters on the home front had hit a rough patch. My wife was wrestling with her own snakes, family dramas and traumas, stressful work, another year gone. And there was me, a handful on my bad days, short-tempered, snappish, unhinged by the dispiriting realities of a career as a writer. At the same time, I had been raised by kind parents to have a good heart and had left the petty and grand cruelties of my younger years behind. I don't wish to dwell on the issues that bothered me. Boring, right? And everyone has a bag full except that whatever was going on in the deepest reaches of my psyche were being thrown onto a big screen, at least inside my head. So, Sansony and I were having difficult days, though nothing could have prepared us for the storm that was coming our way. I was teaching that spring at what was then one of the finest public high schools in the nation, and that's when it started coming on. The first signs arrived with a fever that wasn't a fever at all. No rising temperatures, no chills, no sweating flashes. 
No cough or sneeze. Run down, yes, but not in the sleep-all-day, half-beaten devastation of a true flu. I suffered headaches that would linger for hours. Something other than a viral bug had infected me and was having its way. At school, pressures were on to perform administrative tasks for which I was not prepared. Being fun in the classroom just wasn't enough. That grand institution full of beauty and inspiration and youthful joy and energy was also a complicated machine with a principal and a faculty tasked with keeping complex gears turning on the way to producing stellar artists and scholars. But I was back and arriving at my first quick stopover at Looney Junction. I call it Friday in the panic room. There was something in the air when I walked into the building that morning, rough and a little hysterical. It so happened that on this Friday, all the ninth graders ended up in my room because the teacher who was responsible for their scheduled class meeting was MIA. Just imagine the scene. 80 of these gifted baby tornadoes crammed into a space made for 35 at the most, every one of them alight with weekend energy on top of their teenage hormones. They were planning an afternoon assembly program and a debate was raging. The noise was bombarding me and when I slipped back out of the room in hopes of finding their advisor, the door closed behind me and the weight of a dozen buzzing bodies was crammed against it. In the next moments, I was in a panic, conjuring all kinds of horrors. What if there was a fire or the ceiling collapsed and they were trapped in there? What if someone was pushed against a window, causing a cascade of glass? What if their arguments turned into a rumble? I found no one outside to help, just more milling bodies. So I started pounding on the door of my room and when I felt it give an inch, I leaned hard with my shoulder and shoved it wide. Then I stood there, my face flushed crimson. The closest students gaped at me in wonder as I made my shaky way to my desk. The chatter raged on for another ten minutes while I sat there, half comatose. Then the bell rang and all of them were gone, leaving a sudden, hollow silence. I got up and made my way across the hall to one of the few teachers who had shown concern and, for a reason I still don't understand, said, Sandra, I'm not afraid to die, and walked out. Later, she would tell me that she saw a mix of fear and craziness in my eyes. I somehow managed my classes until the afternoon rolled around and then went to the school nurse. Something was wrong with me. My temperature was normal, but when she strapped on the blood pressure wrap, I got a shock. It was the highest it had ever been. Ever. She told me it would be wise to see someone, so I packed up, left school, and drove home. By the time I got to the house, the notion came over me that I was having some kind of a heart event. The closest medical anything was the pharmacy at the Kroger store, and I got back into the truck and drove there. Inside, I walked to the window and said, Can you help me? I think I'm having a heart attack. All three pharmacists stared at me, and then one reached for the phone. Ten minutes later, the fire department EMT showed up. Even though my brain felt like it was unwinding, they found my blood pressure was now normal. 
Sansony had by this time left work and was on her way, so I sat, waiting beneath the glaring neon and noticing that I could hear the pharmacist, who were at least 20 feet away and behind glass, as clearly as if I was standing next to them. Sansony arrived and we drove to a dock in a box where the doctor said I could be having some kind of a stress-related reaction, and she suggested we go to the ER. We made our way to Grady Hospital in downtown Atlanta, where a series of young nurses and interns checked out every possible problem on my 69-year-old body. They found nothing alarming. The last doctor, a specialist, said she thought that what was affecting me was major stress. I had some elevated levels of whatever, but she couldn't be, quote, sure about these things, unquote. She told me to relax, give it a break, whatever it was. I said, what about the lights? She looked up, what about them? They're too bright, I said, and everything is really loud. She related some gibberish about hypersensitivity being a symptom, and then she sent us home. I didn't know that I was having my first dealings with the invisible monster. I suspect that if they had been able to get a peek inside my melon at that time, it would have looked like a radar map of an approaching tornado, complete with those little flashes of lightning. I could definitely hear the rumbles of thunder. Next came a large disappointment. Sansony had bought tickets for Joan Baez at Symphony Hall for my birthday, but I was in no shape. The light and the sound just inside the house were so intense that there was no way I could tolerate a room crammed with thousands of people, no matter how brilliant the performance. The crazy was still vibrating in my head. I told her to find someone else to go to the show with her, but she didn't want to leave me alone. As it turned out, all I could handle for that entire weekend was a dark and silent house. Though I did find the time and energy to get into raging arguments with her that left both of us drained. I was falling apart and she was fretting. She couldn't understand and I couldn't explain what was going on inside my head. By Sunday night, we'd had quite enough of each other and for the first time, I had thoughts of getting away from her and everything else. Part 5. This is my brain on chaos. By the Monday morning after that first visit to Grady, I knew there was no way I could throw myself back into the thrash of a classroom. I was reeling from euphoric rushes to moments of terror to deep melancholy. I've been fortunate not to have suffered with depression, but now that grim monster was pulling me down. And so it went with no cooling out, no corner to go to between rounds. It was along this time that the first wild notion that Sansony was conspiring against me came into my head. Now and then, when she was out of the room, I heard her whispering to someone, someone who happened not to be there when I went looking. It was a first inkling of the nutty fever dreams that were coming my way. And after 12 years of sharing a bed, I moved into our guest room. Over the days that followed, I called my daughter to whisper that I had to get out. She was confused and frightened and didn't know what to do with the information. 
The person she had come to know as always there for her, never even late for God's sake, was crumbling before her eyes. But she was blessed and then raised with a backbone, and there at the beginning and throughout the ordeal, she mostly kept it together. She did have help. Adam, her boyfriend at the time, and then her fiancé, and now her husband, stood by her. Neither she nor I could have asked for a more supportive partner. Though I do wonder that as things got more bizarre, he paused to ponder on what kind of loony family he had attached himself to. Still, it didn't stop him from stepping up. She told me later that it was one of the reasons she wanted to marry him. So it was the two of them and Sansony who would rescue me. My sensitivity to light and sound kept growing. People far away talking as if they were on bullhorns, and my visuals were like Van Gogh paintings. I was tripping on the psychedelic mushroom of my own brain. Let me take a moment to mention my new wardrobe. Big dark sunglasses over my regular specs, massive 1980s vintage Sony headphones, and a ragged old hoodie and sweatpants. I was a sight to behold as I went wandering aimlessly inside and out. At home, TV was pretty much out of the question, too brittle and annoying. I could barely manage the computer screen. Even music, especially the roots music that I've loved since my teenage years and had always given me so much joy, sounded strange to my ears. My school agenda changed. I called in a substitute teacher and explained that there was a problem with my vision, which was not totally untrue. I gave her instructions for my classes and she checked in with me through the day. Once the sun went down, I drove to the building, let myself in, and sat in my dark room, sometimes until midnight, grading papers and preparing the lesson for the next day. Back home, I was in the guest room, hearing the whispers and laughter and the feet padding in the hall. It was the first act of a horror movie come to life. Looking back, I don't understand how I had managed to that point. Every day I would wake up about 5.30, start coffee, make and pack lunches for both of us, drive Sansony to the train station, mostly in sullen silence at the end there, and then drive myself to school to face 10 hours of kids and papers. After which, I would collect Sansony and come back home to cook dinner and do more schoolwork, and then do it again the next day. I now believe that the pressures of this schedule lent to my crack-up. On the other hand, I was proud that I could pull it off until I couldn't. And perhaps having all those tasks to complete was how I maintained for as long as I did. Keeping busy to hold back the dam, in other words. On Thursday, with my head continuing to unwind, I lurched into an adventure that was sad, borderline comical, and revelatory in the space of an afternoon. I began by calling two of my wife's friends who lived nearby to tell them in confidence that I would be leaving for a while and asking them to look after her. Their reactions were something along the lines of, okay, and I could hear the suspicion in their voices. They were not interested in whatever it was that was driving me away. Was I just another no-account bastard walking out on a good woman? To be fair, both had recently gone through difficult breakups and did not want to hear from any male talking about abandoning their sister. 
I went online and reserved a car. My plan was to drive to a beach or a cabin in the mountains and hide out until the sickness passed. Off I went. I made it to our closest MARTA station, got on the train to Five Points, that's the downtown station, and then waited in that echoing underground cavern for the southbound to Hartsfield. After what seemed like hours, but was only minutes, the train appeared. It was a half hour trip and the racket in the car was ridiculous. The noises were rising and the light from the window was flashing and so of course someone starts playing music. Forbidden on the trains, but neither I nor anyone else was inclined to speak up. I hung in as best I could and stepped out onto the platform at the airport. I made it. Actually, not quite. There was a whole other train to the rental car section, this one smaller and more crowded. Now I began noticing people looking at me and then looking away. The lights overhead were almost unbearable, even with my shades, and I tried closing my eyes, but that only made the sounds harsher. I managed to tough it out to the next terminal, got in line, and finally made it to the counter. The rental agent glanced at me, then looked away. I handed over the reservation I had printed out. She began explaining something I couldn't follow, and I was saying, What? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Her voice came back slow and brittle. Local residents are required to make reservations at least 24 hours in advance, she said. Oh yeah, the fine print. Then she barked out, next in line. She had still not met my eyes, or my shades as it was. I stood there staring at the piece of paper in my hand. She was getting agitated and snapped something else and then, snapping again, called out, NEXT! As I ambled off, I was struck by what had just transpired. Okay, picture this. You're sitting at a counter and after a string of flustered families and corporate mannequins, here comes this guy wearing sunglasses over his glasses and sporting enormous old-school headphones with the cord stuffed into his shirt pocket and wild gray-white hair coming out from under his hoodie. And, oh yeah, I didn't mention that I had also forgotten to shave that day. So, of course, she thought I was a street crazy. And how the hell did he get in here? I found my way to the space underneath the escalator in a state of shock because I had just spent five minutes in the role of a homeless lunatic. For that moment, I was staggered as I realized that this was how harmless but afflicted people are treated all the time. Wounded by the world, but still stung with every new blade, large or small. Maybe I could have explained to her, I'm a father and a husband. I'm a veteran. I've written 12 books. I've been a school teacher and held dozens of other jobs, some serious, others stupid. You know, the usual. I have friends, but it wouldn't have done any good. I was meaningless to her, at best a bother or something to tell the husband about over dinner. You should have seen him. I made my way out of the terminal and didn't look back. The ride into the city was longer and louder. Normally, I would have switched trains for the last mile to where I had parked my truck 
which would have taken all of two minutes. But I could not bear another second in that raucous pit, so I climbed to the street and into the cool of the night. My path took me through some dicey real estate where ragged characters, like me, with bad intentions, unlike me, were known to roam. Standing on the corner and peering into the distance, I convinced myself that I was in danger of a mugging, and so, one by one, I took out my bank card and my credit card, broke them in half, and put the pieces in different trash bins. As I stumbled along, each person I passed was a criminal threat. Every car was about to jump the curb and mow me down. Every sound I heard was something terrible about to happen. And I didn't seem to be getting anywhere as if I was walking through mud. One step followed another though, and gradually I made it to one intersection and then the next, and presently the sign for the King Station appeared. I had one last corner to traverse and there, a half-dozen ragged characters had gathered to panhandle from the customers of the convenience store. In any other instance, someone would have harangued me. Now nobody took notice. To be clear, this was not a slumming routine. It wasn't a lark or a cute story to relate at a party. I was not a homeless person. I had a place to go bed to sleep in, food to eat. I was just lost with my broken brain for that short time. And during those minutes, I came out of my fog to see the street, the world, from the other side. I got back in my truck and drove off. I was safe. Until I got to the house and found Sansony upset at my absence. Another fight ensued. She had never dealt with a mental crash and didn't understand what was happening to me any more than I did. And I grew all the more furious at her lack of compassion. It was far worse than anything we'd gone through in the 12 years we'd been together. And it would be a while before it got better.